Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep but easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. And as we say this, and every podcast we do, we take time every month, the last Friday, to answer some questions. And so much like today's podcast episode, we are going to take some time to answer questions that have been submitted over the last month. And so uh, if you have questions coming out of this or even in future weeks throughout this podcast, please send those questions into info at grove.church, because just like today, we're going to spend some time answering them. So, Yeah, absolutely. So our first question uh, is this. Hi, Evan and Aaron. During the last podcast Q&A, you mentioned something as being Trinitarian. Uh, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, so can you explain it and provide some biblical grounding? Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, the verses that I think it's based on is John 1, 1, which talks about the word being God. And then later in the chapter, Jesus is the word. And then 2 Corinthians three seventeen, which says that Jesus is the spirit. Is that it? Question mark. Okay. So Trinity is, uh, it's, it's it's a complicated deal. So as far yeah, as we're going to do our goes. our best to help you understand Trinity from a, not just a biblical perspective, but even uh, just a mental understanding and right. intellectually. So, so um, I mean, the first thing to ask is when you say, "Is the Trinity in the Bible?" Um, if you mean the word Trinity, then the answer is no. Um, the Trinity is really this idea of um, it's our theological word that um, the church fathers kind of came up with to describe the way that God is presented in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So while the word is not in the Bible, the idea of it very much is. Yeah. Um, and so just to kind of to kind of help along, and I will preface this by saying it's a very complicated idea in the sense of as as humans, we're just not going to be able to fully understand it. But it's bringing uh, together what the Bible says about God in different passages, and this is the way that we kind of bring it together to say like this yeah. is how the Bible presents God. Um, so first off, the Bible is clear that there is one God. Um, the exact passage escapes me, but in Deuteronomy, you know, it says, "Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, there is one God, and you worship Him alone." Uh, we're a, a monotheistic faith. In other words, we don't worship many gods, uh, but we worship the one God. And then I believe that's Deuteronomy six, four through six. I'll trust you. It's the Shema. Yeah, which yeah, and which we've Dr. talked about. Doctor Hobson would be proud of me. So if you're listening, Doctor Hobson, thank you for your brilliant Sh- teaching. Shout out to that guy. Um, but and in other places in the Bible, we get clear pictures of um, really three separate persons being presented as God. And mm-hmm. so we have the Father, which you really don't have to go into it because the Father is just kind of everywhere throughout Scripture, and, and it's not particularly uh, hidden. And then for most of the Old Testament, that's the idea that we get. Although in the Old Testament, we do have this idea of the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but moving forward, uh, yeah, the passages you pointed out are great ones where it talks about the uh, the deity of Christ. So yeah, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So And, and that's a important statement. It's saying that in the beginning, there was these two things, but they were both God. And then the passage goes on to explain that Jesus is the word, or in other words, in the beginning was Christ and, and Christ is with God and Christ is is God. Yeah. So um, that's a really interesting point. The Holy Spirit is also presented as God, um, particularly in a lot of the epistles and in the book of Acts. Um, and even in the book of Genesis, where it talks about the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the expanse. Right. Yeah, so exactly. We see it all throughout the throughout the entirety of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, there's the thing called Christophany, which is also referencing Old Testament accounts that talk about an angel of the Lord, which alluded to Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, where even Old Testament individuals had encounters with Christ that we now see in the New Testament, but also because 
Jesus didn't exist once he was born on earth. He was in, a, in existence before creation too. Yeah. So yeah, Jesus is not just the man Jesus, um, but he is, he is eternally existent. He is God yeah. as well. Um, and so the word Trinity comes from, and I wrote it down really quick. It's the Latin word Trinitas, which literally just translates to, uh, to three or threeness is kind of, it's this interesting idea. And I found this really helpful video that I ended up watching um, on Zondervan academic. So if you just kind of search that, I'm sure you'll be able to pull it up, but it, it was really helpful. If not send us a, that question. Hey, I can't find it. Can you send me that? Yeah. We'll make sure to send it to you. Um, but in it, the, uh, the professor talks about, and I think it was, it was a really cool um, idea that when you look in, in English or in other words, English translations of the Bible, um, Trinity is not the word that's used there. It's it's an old English word. Um, it's like thrinos, but basically, like to us, it translates as threeness. Mm-hmm. And so, it, sometimes I think we get into our heads a little bit because the word Trinity is kind of this just like um, really technical word. When really, what we're saying is we believe in the threeness of God, or the idea that God exists um, in in a state of threeness. And so, the way that um, it gets worked out in a lot of the church doctrine is the idea that God is exists eternally as one substance, but three persons. Um, and that sounds really complicated because it is. Um, and so, and, and I want to yes, be careful. It really is. I want to be careful because I think there's, there's some helpful analogies that kind of come up, um, but they all fall short in one way or the other. Like I'm sure you've heard of the three leaf clover or the, um, like the egg, there's an egg analogy where it's like, there's the shell and then there's the white and then there's yeah. the yolk. Then and there's also the a water analogy or the, the chemical component in water, the, the, uh, what is it? The, uh, it's like, yeah, it's gas, liquid, and solid yeah, all, all at the same things. time, but they all have the same makeup. It's all H2O. Yeah. And so, and that's where I, some of those are helpful to kind of understand, but they all fall short in different mm-hmm. ways. Like for Absolutely. instance, water, it's not saying that like one day God is, you know, the father and then the next day God is the son and then God is, you know, so it's kind of that whole sort of thing. One of the more helpful things I've heard, and it's funny because it's actually an analogy about how we can't understand it. Um, but there's, uh, he's an astrophysicist, I believe named Hugh Ross. And he's, he's really, he's really cool. He does a lot of, um, he's a Christian. He, he does a lot of talks just kind of about like scientific evidence of God and the universe is really cool. But one of the analogies he brings up and, and this is, I think it's been helpful for me to kind of understand is, um, let's say and it's kind of hard to do over audio, but let's just say you are a three-dimensional person. We exist in three dimensions, which means we, you know, we can move forward back. Um, that's how we perceive the world. If let's just imagine for a moment, there were people who only perceived two dimensions. And so if they're on a wall, all they can perceive is the two dimensions. They don't perceive that outside of, you know, this wall or this painting or picture, or whatever it is that there's, there's a whole nother world. He's saying, if you put, your three fingers and you place them onto the picture, really what the person who only sees in two dimensions, they would see three separate circles. They wouldn't see your hand. They wouldn't see your fingers. They wouldn't see your body with all they would see is three different circles that appear on the picture. And it doesn't matter how much you try to explain to them what it is. If you don't exist in three dimensions, you can't understand things that happen in three dimensions. And and kind of the idea of it is um, God exists in a way that we as humans right now can't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't want to call it like four dimensions or whatever it is, but basically it's this idea that as humans, the way that we perceive the world, especially on this side of eternity, there's a way that God exists that we simply can't grasp. And so I know that's probably not really satisfactory to all of you out there because it's not like a, it's not a definitive, like here's exactly how the Trinity works. But um, basically what we know is that the Bible describes God 
as being one, but also describes God as existing in three persons. Um, it's a complicated idea. The word Trinity is just kind of our way of saying this is the idea of who God is as presented in the scripture. It's not fully understood, but it's it's kind of the best we can do for now. So Yeah, and I think, I mean, it, we have to understand that there's, because there's limitations in our humanity, uh, we are created beings, we're not a creator, uh, there, there's going to be a lot of hindrances or limitations to our understanding. And so in our, in our true and like arrogance in humanity, we see this throughout scriptures, we try and solve and answer and create, uh, in a way that makes it sense to us. But there's just some things we have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm not going to fully understand that, but I trust God and his sovereignty in the midst of this. But the Trinity is, it, it is such a deep, deep well that it's very hard to, uh, it's very uncharted. I guess that's the way I say yeah. it. Um, but we and try and make sense of it as best we can. Yeah. There's some mysteries that just kind of on this side of eternity, we're not going to have a full understanding of uh, really quick. Long last thing before moving on to the next question, uh, Matthew 28, 19 is a really important verse for the Trinity because it says, go therefore and make all make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. And so there we see there in, in Jesus's baptism as well, yeah. are two of the really clear pictures of um, not just the three parts of the Trinity all being separately defined as God, but they're together mm-hmm. um, are all being said, like, this is how you baptize. You are baptizing in the name of these three persons. So uh, yeah. that's the idea, but moving on to uh, less complicated questions. So uh, question two, uh, it says it is easy to pick out negativity in the book of Ecclesiastes, but what would you say are the biggest positives within the book? Um, then he says, I love the bit about a cord of three strands not easily being broken, but aside from that, I've always found it hard to ignore the overwhelming feeling of who cares, it doesn't matter. Which I is, love uh, this question. I love, I love Ecclesiastes, because he is right. Like, there, a huge portion of it is like, nothing matters. It's Let's just be funny. honest, the entire, the entire portion Almost, of Ecclesiastes yeah. is like, nothing matters. And so, I, yeah, and I, I would say for me... Um, the most powerful section that is overtly positive is the very end of the book where, um, but we talked about that on the podcast, so I don't want to yeah, reiterate. So go back and listen to it. Yeah. But uh, at the, the very last podcast, we talked about Ecclesiastes, the very end section where it says, you know, remember the, your creator in the days of your youth, I think is a really important passage. Um, but the other one I thought that was really interesting is Ecclesiastes, and this is in chapter nine, verses 13 through 18. Um, and it says this, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and, and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And so there's a couple things. It, there's still a little bit of negativity in there, but because <laughs> he's saying like the poor man's not remembered, mm-hmm. who cares? Um, but I was listening to um, uh, a political commentator that I enjoy listening to, and he he had a joke that he was talking about. Uh, I forgot who it was, but he was saying basically, um, uh, man, that this guy's the the worst person I've ever met who doesn't run a country. And his point was um, a lot of times when we see um great people um they're oftentimes not good people and very rarely and i would say rarely actually are 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 the is a great man a good man if mm-hmm. if that makes sense and i think that's actually a really christian idea um because if you look at jesus jesus was not 
a great man in the sense of the time. Obviously, in hindsight, he's the most important person who's ever lived. But at the time, he wasn't a great ruler. He wasn't a conqueror. Um, if it wasn't for that whole resurrection thing, he wouldn't be remembered for very long. <laughs> um, but if you're looking at it just from a pure human standpoint, you know, Jesus wasn't a great man. He's a very good man. And his yeah. teachings ended up being so incredible and they, and they rebounded around the world. But oftentimes, I think that, and, and what Ecclesiastes is getting at is there's great rulers who aren't necessarily wise. They're not necessarily like morally upright. But they just have power. And yeah. then in this city, there's a poor man who, through wisdom, is actually able to defend the city. And even though no one remembers him, it's better to be that poor man than to be the foolish ruler, which I think is a really um, important lesson for us to learn, too. And it's it's there with Jesus. It's there with the disciples as well. None of the disciples were what you would call great men. Um, they were, in fact, most of them were called be- you. because they weren't. Yeah. Um, but there is this idea that that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect things, which is uh, which should be encouraging to all of us as Christians. Yeah. And I think even outside of that, like, we are all imperfect. The only good, great perfect thing is as jesus himself as god yeah. so um but it's funny because evan even mentioned right before we started recording like don't forget to plot uh, ecclesiastes scriptures like no i'm not doing that um because i i i'm a self-proclaimed optimist and i say it this way when it comes to things outside of my own complaints uh i have a for whatever reason there's a hopeful trust in things that are outside of what directly inconveniences me and so when i read a book like ecclesiastes while it has a negative tone You've got to look. I would say you have to look beyond the the negative tone or the negative statements to understand what is the what is Solomon really trying to tell us and communicate to us. Uh, and so I would say it's actually a pretty hopeful book. I would I would say that there's not. I'm not going to look for a nugget of hope or a nugget of fun, but I'm going to look at what is Solomon saying in the in 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 the overview of everything he said. And I would re and I, and I would just simply say this: it's a revelation to you and I. That the thing which we claim to be our hope, which is God himself, Solomon reiterates that through the pursuit. I mean, in our humanity, I mean, I'm just going to be honest and transparent for a second. There are things I would much rather pursue to bring me satisfaction and fulfillment than Jesus. Because I'm human, because I'm sinful, and God is still redeeming and transforming me with his truth. And there's part of me that thinks, man, I mean, before I was married, I'm going to find some companion, so I'm just going to pursue every every girl that I possibly can, hoping that it'll stick and make me feel f- satisfied. And the truth is, Solomon does every one of those things. Solomon pursues and goes down every path that we in our humanity could desire and want, and then comes out at the end of it saying, nope, it's all meaningless. It's all worthless. It's It's hopeless to continue to pursue things apart from God himself, which is why at the end of the book, he says, remember the creator. Uh, and I think I would just simply say this. I think what Solomon has done is he's forged a path that we in our own humanity and sinfulness want to walk down, but he's already walked down it saying, hey, listen, I've been there. I've done that. It's not going to do anything. So because of that, I would just simply say uh, that I don't know if there is an, if it's quote unquote negative and this whole book sucks. Why are we reading it? But it's, it's a call and a reminder to you and I that they're the only hope and satisfaction. I think, um, the passage that has ringed in my mind a lot lately has been out of first uh, Timothy, I believe, where it says godliness with contentment is great gain. Is being content in the fact that God is who he says he is. He is a source of, of everything we need. And so I think that that, as I look at the book of Ecclesiastes, I don't walk out dejected or discouraged or annoyed because it's so woe is everything, vanity, vanity, it's all meaningless. But I walk out saying, okay, so I know that the pursuits of these things apart from Jesus is not worth it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So ne- our next question is uh, in First Kings 22, it says that Jehoshaphat did right in the eyes of the Lord, but he didn't destroy the high places, implying that he should have done. Uh, were the high places inherently bad because they could be used for Baal or Asherah worship? It's puzzling because Samuel, Abraham, and others used high places frequently. Was the expectation that everyone was meant to solely worship at the temple in Jerusalem? Such a good question. Yeah, and and you kind of answered for the thoughtfulness, and you kind of answered it in the question. But we'll go a little bit deeper um, into it. So, um, yes, is the short answer. Everyone was expected to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, a couple different things. Um, I do want to make clear that. There are multiple ways that we worship God. Um, in today's context, for instance, you know, a lot of times in church context, we think of worship as being like singing, but it's also worship to sit and learn about scripture, whether mm-hmm. that's in daily devotions or listening to a sermon. It's also worship to pray. It's also worship to use your gifts to further God's kingdom. There's a lot of different, it's worship to give um, money to accomplish God's mission here on earth. There's a lot of ways that we worship. It's not just one. And similarly, in the Old Testament, there was multiple ways that the people of Israel could worship God. So when we say, um, were they expected to worship just at the temple? No, but they were expected to give sacrifices. So that form of worship was supposed to take place solely at the temple. Um, the reason Abraham and Samuel and the, and the few others that you um, say use the high places is because when they were doing their ministry, there was no temple. Um, with Abraham in particular, there was nothing. Uh, with Samuel, there was the tabernacle, and the expectation did not seem to be that everyone would go to the tabernacle, but rather, or where the ark was at the time, but rather that you could worship God just kind of in the high places where you were. Well, and remember, the tabernacle went with God's people. Right. The tabernacle was a mobile temple. That's what it was for. So when the God's people would get up and leave, so would the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And so it was centrally located with them. For the most part, that's kind of the, like, that's what the tabernacle was long before the temple was even thought about. I think it was David who thought about dreaming or dreamed about building God a temple. Building, yeah. And, and it's clearly in God's will that the temple would be built. And so once it's built in Solomon, that's where we see the shift of the high places take place. Before then, the high places are, I, I believe they're never, or if they are, it's very rarely described as negative places. But I think they were also built, like I'm thinking of when they crossed the Jordan River. They piled stones up, which was a, a they built point altars, of, yeah, yeah. So it was a point of of remembrance. It was a point of worship. Like it was a point of significance for generation to generation to generation to pass on God's provision, God's goodness. It's a reflection point, or almost a point of. Um, it's. I mean, I, this sounds really weird because I was just in Cleveland with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it's an icon. It's a uh, like going back generations when from some of these individuals going back and reviewing and seeing like, oh yeah, there's like history there. There's a there's, there's some value there. It's, right. It's almost like I, I, it's really cheap. It cheapens it, I think, a little bit to compare it to a museum, but it has some of that 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 feeling of of uh, generational history. Yeah, you were able to look off. back at what this thing is and remember what God had done, mm-hmm. um, particularly with yeah the people of Israel. But um, but moving forward with it, after the temple is built, that's where we see the shift in the tone that the Bible takes when it's describing the high places. And so after that, um, in fact, it talks about how Solomon builds. Uh, high places for his wives that he marries who don't don't mm-hmm. worship the Lord, um, and that's kind of the first hint of this kind of real idolatry that's being per, that's being pushed by the king yeah. um, that we've seen. And then from that point on, the high places are points of rebellion. Um, they are still points of rebellion when people worship, um, you know, Yahweh God 
in the high places. Um, but And it's even even more severe form of rebellion when they're worshiping, you know, like you said, Baal, Asherah, Molech, um, all of these different gods who um, the people of Israel yeah. begin to kind of just fall, to fall prey to. So that is why. Um, and then you see with um, really the most righteous kings of Judah, um, after, so after the split of the kingdom, I would say are Hezekiah and Josiah, uh, which we haven't gotten to yet in the in the podcast. Stay but tuned. We, yeah, we will be getting to them. Um, both of them, great kings. They lead the people of Israel out of idolatry. And in fact, I believe that God says to both of them that the destruction of Judah has been pushed back because of the righteousness of the kings and the way that they lead the people. Um, and both of those kings, what they have in common is that they destroy the high places yeah. um, that are up at the time. And then there's other kings who are considered righteous, like Jehoshaphat, um, Uzziah is another one who we were, we talked about last week, um, who are righteous, they serve the Lord, they lead the people to serve the Lord, but they don't destroy the high places. And that's kind of the separation between being a good king and a great king yeah. uh, in the eyes of God. Well, and Judah. I think... Yeah, and I would even say and add to that, um, when the high places are established, the intent behind them is not to worship God. The intent behind them is to allow, and I don't even know if I would fully agree with the statement that it was, I think it was Solomon you referenced that pushed idol worshiping, when I think it was Solomon who allowed idol worshiping. I think he sure. created because of his wives, and for those of us who are married, we know we we give in, not in a sinful way, but we give in to, because we want our wives to be happy. So I'm going to assume the best in Solomon, the optimist that I am. Um, but there is that, like he allowed it and he enabled it is what he did. And, but the intent was not to worship the sovereign God. The intent was not to worship, um, God above everything else. And so a lot of it comes down to, and I, and I, I feel like I oftentimes go back to the idea when I'm talking to people about the heart, what's the heart behind it? Because that's what makes it right or wrong. If your heart is to honor God, he'll make it known whether that's how he wants to be honored and glorified. If not, if your heart is not to honor him, then it's obviously wrong. So um, so great question though. Uh, we're going to jump into the next question. Uh, and this is where we're jumping to the book of revelation for a couple of questions, which I, I really like. And I think I wish we could almost do a podcast and maybe we'll one day, uh, just on the book of revelation, but it says this is revelation six, 10 to 11, really saying that nothing is going to happen until a lot more Christians are going to die. And then another question on top of that says this, the four horsemen of the apocalypse described in revelation six, six, under whose control or authority are they acting under? Given that they're released from the scroll in heaven, it could be considered heaven sent or captives being sent back to where they came from in preparation for a bigger victory. So Evan, what say you? Yeah, so a couple uh, interesting things. I'm going to read the passage really quick. Go for it, that's a good idea. So in in Revelation 6, uh, I'm going to read 9 through 11 because it gives a little bit of better context, but it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, so the short answer is yes to the yeah. first question. <laughs> like, is it is good luck? Is it saying that God is not going to act until a lot more Christians die? Uh, yeah, and so really, <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to say, but the idea behind it is kind, it, and it reminds me a lot of the of the old testament and god judging judah and israel where he god lets 
with so spoilers, Israel and Judah both get conquered, right? And so I know we're spoiling next week and the week after, but um, or I guess not the week after the Judah. We got a while before Judah falls, but anyway, but it's so, coming. Yeah, all all of that aside, um, the picture of it really is that God allows them to fall into complete depravity before He acts, mm-hmm. um, and so God is not saying, "Well, Judah is going to fall anyway, so let's just have it happen," which we just said with Hezekiah and Josiah. Um, the people repent, they turn to God, and so God pushes it back when. Both of those nations fall. It is when they are at their lowest and have completely rejected God, and and God in His righteous judgment uh, does the same. Same thing with Noah. If you think of when he, um, when God floods the earth, He's doing it at a point where mankind is at its most depraved, um, and really it's just Noah and his family who are yeah. serving the Lord, and everyone else isn't. And so, what we're getting here is this picture that um, God is is not going to act until the world is that it's most depraved is kind of what it seems here. And regardless of the different things, um, because Revelation could be a complicated book. And so like, you know, what is symbolic? What are things that are literally going to happen? So regardless of how it happens, um, it seems that the judgment of God is going to be coming at a time when there are very few or or no Christians uh, on the earth is kind of the idea, or at a time when Christians are being completely persecuted worldwide. Um, However that may look, whatever that may be, um, whether it's kind of the rapture happens and that's why it's going down or whether it's because they're just continuing continuing to be martyred. Um, but it is this picture that God's grace and God's mercy extends very far. Yeah. Um, and he's God at any point really could be angry and just pour out his wrath on the world. Because even we as, as, as uh, Christians who trust in the salvation of Jesus, we have sinned and we have wronged. And, and if you're just going by, not by our relationship with Christ, but just by our actions alone, we all deserve hell. We all deserve God's wrath. Um, and it is only God's mercy and his slowness to anger that has allowed really us to continue to have relationship with him. And so it's the same thing here on a macro scale is that God is slow to anger and and he's really not going to act until, um, and again, this is kind of an open-handed statement because there's a lot of different ways this could be interpreted, but until the world is really at, at, at at an incredibly depraved point where it is almost completely rejected God. Well, and it's even, it's even to the point where God knows. I mean, Matthew 24, I think it is reminds us that we, we don't know and we won't know what God knows when he intends to return, when he intends to pull out and roll out everything that he's doing. And so it's, I do think it is this picture of grace where we have to understand it. Also the patience that plays out is that God is, is God's hope is that the, like the entirety of humanity would, would accept and, and return to him. Right. But real, re- realistically, it's not going to happen. We see that throughout scripture. It's not going to happen, but he's, his grace is on display in the sense that he is not quick to cause judgment now uh that was kind of a fun snap effect but um but like and so there is this like yes it's it's kind of a sucky thing to think about like wait more christians have to die before god comes and redeems humanity and judges sin for one final time and well yeah but again it's one of those go back to the trinity conversation there are things we will not understand because we are not god right and we have to be okay with our finiteness if that makes sense yeah the other question there i think is a really good one about you know what's the deal with the four horsemen yeah control Um, and authority and so when you, when the question says under whose control or authority are they acting under, um, bear in mind those are two very different questions. And so authority, well, nothing in the universe happens without God's authority. Um, Everything submits to him. Yeah. He is sovereign. And nothing is, has more authority than him. And we see this really clearly in the book of Job when it actually talks about how Satan yep. comes to God and asks to do these different things. And it only happens with uh, God's permission. Now, that's not to say that God is in control of all of the evil that happens. And here's what I mean by that. And it can be kind of nuanced. Um, 
nothing that happens happens without God allowing it to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, God does not perpetrate evil, but he allows us and other beings the freedom to commit evil. So, us as humans, we can do um, incredibly evil things, like just you know, open up a history book and you'll see like the incredible evils that humans are capable of. It's not that God is committing those evils, but because he is committed to free will, because he's committed to allowing humans to act and and to love, he's also committed to allowing humans to hate. Um, And that's really something that can happen. Um, That being said, the four horsemen are acting under the authority of God, but they're also acting under the command of God. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times we have this, um, we have this perspective that, our person-to-person morality also applies to God. And and here's what I mean by that. Um, like, if if I shot Aaron, um, I would go to jail for murder, and then uh, that would... Well, you're assuming that you'd actually kill me with a shot. That's right. He's so. going to take more than that. But anyway, um, but yeah, I, I would go to jail to murder, and that would also be morally wrong. It is morally wrong to murder. Um, if God decided to kill Aaron, I don't know why I'm using you. If God decided to kill me, God, please um, that's, not, that's not murder. God has complete authority to do that, and it's not morally wrong for God to do that. And so a lot of times we get caught up in um, thinking of you know, like the death and destruction that we see in Revelation, like, oh, this is a great evil thing. Well, well, no. If if mankind was doing this to mankind, then yes, it would be an evil thing. But God exists above us, and God has complete moral authority um, to do what he will. Now, that being said, there's there's clear parameters where God says, you know, it's not in his character to lie, and therefore God will not lie. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's there's some different things that that really – apply in a moral law in the sense of man to man or person to person, but they don't apply as far as God to, to humans. So that's what I would say there. Yeah. And I think um, like, this is a really lame analogy, but it, I think for me, it helps make sense of some of the things I read in revelation. And even if you go back a couple weeks, I think it was two or three weeks ago where I talked about like the idea of the locusts that are part of the wrath that God pours out in one of the bowls or the squirrels mm-hmm. um, that they have been given the, uh, enablement and the power to go and ravage the earth to pour to, to but he says but God gives them parameters you can do this you can't do this you can devour their f- crops but you can't devour their homes like what he he sets in essence the way I, I view it is it's like a bowling alley with guard with guard bumpers and or even with the gutters like it's this idea that you, there's a lane to stay in that they have the free, like God gives Stay these, in your lane, Locust. Stay in your lane, bro. I think of that bad commercial, this funny commercial. Anyways, um, but I think that like that's kind of where it is, where God sets, here's the parameters. You don't get to cross them because I'm because I'm in control. You're not. You get to do what I tell you to do. And and these horsemen stay in their lane. They run in their lane and do what they have been commanded to do. And again, we have to remember that God's wrath is being poured out on sin and sinful people and the sin we see the sinfulness in us through our rejection of who god is and the grace and mercy and invitation to belong in his family and so there's that the the four horsemen are staying within their lane they're submitting to the, the authority and even the control of god's power but they're doing what they're told to do and doing what they're released to go do right so hopefully that makes sense and we're, we're running up on time a little bit so final question this this will actually be pretty quick um Revelation twenty one fourteen states that the New Jerusalem will have twelve foundations, each one with the name of the apostles. Does that include Judas Iscariot? Yes. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, quick answer. I, it's basically 
12 is an important number of the Bible, uh, in the Bible. So there's 12 tribes of Israel, which we see kind of repeated over and over again. And I, I think it's not an accident that Jesus also chose 12 disciples who would become the 12 apostles. Um, and there's this, there's this idea of the number 12 being complete when it comes to that number, which is why in Acts chapter one, after Judas has killed him, after, after Judas is betrayed and then killed himself, uh, the disciples actually choose Matthias to replace uh, Judas. Not that's, that we hear much about more of no, Matthias, pretty much but, it, but it's this idea of wholeness almost. Yeah. And so I would say that is probably the name that you will see uh, on the 12, on one of the 12 foundations as far as that is going. But yeah, so not including Judas, but there is this idea that uh, Jesus specifically called 12 and, and that is, you know, that's the important number to maintain yeah. whole. So really quick answer on that one, uh, but that's pretty much uh, where we're at as far as what the Bible says about there being 12 disciples and and all of that. Uh, so with that being said, thank you so much for uh, for listening. I hope all of your These are uh, fun questions. Thanks. Yeah, it was they were really fun to research. Hopefully, uh, you found the answers all satisfactory. Uh, if not, it's Evan's fault. It's true. But yeah, stay tuned for uh, this Sunday when we drop our next episode. And remember to always send in uh, your questions, whether it's to info at grove.church or uh, just over the Facebook page. You can directly message the Grove Church Facebook page. And we would love uh, to get your questions into the podcast and answer them next time. That being said, we will uh, see you all in a couple days. Have a great day.